Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 36th episode of The Writ Podcast. Big news in Ottawa this week, as the Liberals and New Democrats have come together with a confidence and supply agreement that, if at last, could keep the Liberals in office until the end of their term in 2025. The deal has the Liberals committed to a few policies, including dental care and pharmacare, in exchange for NDP support and confidence votes, like the budget. This will have huge implications for federal politics over the next few years, not only in terms of what policies come out of this, but what it means for the future of the Liberals, the NDP, and the Conservatives too. There's a lot to unpack, so I'm joined again today by this CBC's Aaron Wary. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Eric. So there's so much, and I don't really know where to start, um, but I guess it makes sense to start at the beginning about, you know, we did hear some rumors, some chatter about it uh, a few months after the election, and then we didn't hear anything. There was other things happening, of course. And then suddenly, um, we just see the stories breaking on Monday night. So, like, how did this all come together? And was this something that was just being worked on this entire time? I don't know if it was worked on, like, I don't get the sense that it was worked on uh, um, the entire time since the election. I think, you know, usually when you see agreements like this, they come about because uh, there's like a there's like a real sudden need to do something right. Like you're you're the second place party in this in the in the legislature or you're the you know, you're you're a government with a tenuous grasp on power. and You need to do something to kind of shore up your stability in the in the legislature. And there there really wasn't like a crisis for a real kind of like urgent issue that made them have to, to negotiate a deal. So I think, so I think there were kind of talks in the fall and then, you know, there wasn't really a, a pressing need to do it and there were other things going on. And so it kind of got shelved and then, you know, the year, the new year starts and, and other things are going on. And I think that's when they start to kind of go, Oh, you know what? It, it might be useful to have a deal here. Are you still interested? Are you still interested? And that's when they kind of talk. And it picks up pace. And the other, you know, the other element here is that they did it all very quietly, right? And they did it with a very small circle of people uh, on each side. And I, I mean, I think that was primarily because they just didn't want stuff to leak. Uh, they wanted to be able to kind of do this in peace and quiet and figure out how to do a deal without it turning into a big media show. And so that's why it kind of seemed to come out of nowhere because, you know, everybody had heard these reports in the fall and, it, you know, there was, there was definitely like from the conversations I had, there was definitely like some interest, but it wasn't really specific and it wasn't, it wasn't clear that anybody was really rushing to do it. And then I think everybody kind of forgot about it. Uh, but I think, you know, part of what gets you to this point is there's all these crises going on with the convoy in Ukraine and, I think there was suddenly a, a, a desire to kind of find some stability and find some some security about what how the next few years are going to play out. And I think that kind of helped push everybody together. The stability question, I guess, is what really kind of drives this, because when you think about the recent uh, confidence and supply agreements that we've seen, uh, the one in Yukon, the one that was in B.C. in 2017, those were two parties that were smaller um than the governor the bigger party the Yukon party I think there was a tie between them or something but in BC it was the NDP was the second place party the Greens were the third in New Brunswick you had um the Liberals had fewer seats but they were trying to hold on so Blaine Higgs needed a agreement from the People's Alliance to kind of prove that they could form a government but this is a case where 
it wasn't required, right? When you think about the past history of these kinds of agreements, it was usually a second and a third place party teaming up to beat the one that's in first. But it's a weird thing where the liberals, it's almost like this wasn't a requirement. It's almost like a nice to have, not a need to have. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Because I, I, I think that's what kept it, as, as, as I was saying, I think that's what kept it from happening quickly. But I think it's that stability that ultimately kicks in where, you know, by the sounds of it, the government's looking around and they're saying, you know, we just spent a couple of weeks dealing with the convoy. Now we've spent, you know, uh, several weeks dealing with the Ukraine crisis. <laughs> we still have a platform to implement. Uh, you know, maybe we could do it by negotiating everything on a case-to-case basis, finding, you know, moments when the NDP, you know, the NDP would probably agree with all of these things on a case-by-case basis. But, uh, you know, if you're the government, you're going, you're thinking to yourself, I think, could we give ourselves some guaranteed time here where we don't have to worry about going to an election every two weeks, where, you know, if crises pop up, uh, we don't have to worry that, you know, we're not getting platform stuff implemented or we don't have to worry that this is, this, you know, that we're trying to kind of to, to deal with this urgent situation and also deal with the, the, the threat of an election. I think that stability is a real big selling point. And, you know, I think it's also it gets to a point where if we keep having, as, I, as I've written this week, like if we keep having minority parliaments, you need to find some stability at some point because otherwise you're governing on two-year intervals. And I just don't know that that's really going to work for anybody. And sort of the, the flip side of that is the price for the stability is the NDP wants to be able to say that they got a few things through, right? That they got this, they got dental care and pharmacare on the agenda when they wouldn't have been. And so, you know, the government does have to, to put some water in its wine and, and make a deal here. But uh, I think that stability is huge. For the NDP, um, you know, they do buy some stability for themselves because, you know, they spent a lot of money in the last election and they only got one extra seat out of it. Um, So they don't have really much of an incentive to go to the polls again. And they probably would have been the party that was forced into supporting the government in the next few budgets anyway. So I can see how this makes sense from their perspective to have something where they have much more of a role in deciding these policies. Uh, They're not just constantly being... Uh, pushed into a corner. Uh, but there is still that risk that at the end of it, um, people thank Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, if Justin Trudeau is still the leader, and we'll talk about that later. Um, but there is that possibility that if people like dental care and pharmacare and say, well, the Liberals gave us that, thanks NDP, but we'll just go for the Liberals. There is that risk there. Um, but yeah. I, I suppose for the New Democrats, there was a risk with either either option, right? Yeah. And I think I think in the long run, it, it they probably benefit from like an action instead of a deal by uh, you know a moment by moment kind of crisis negotiation. It it probably benefits the NDP to say, look, like we're not just the party that uh, the government negotiated with on these things. We're the party that made a deal that got these things in writing that uh, uh, you, you know made this sort of long term serious uh, uh, accord and look at us, you know, we have real influence over the agenda. And, but I, at the same time, I, I do think the, the NDP, and I think you're seeing it, them do it already, is 
they're going to have to make a concerted effort here to say, hey, we didn't just rubber stamp the government. Uh, we got things here. This this is because we got, you know, this is because we're here that these things got done. And, you know, then you go into the next campaign saying, if you want more things like this, you need to elect more new Democrats, either because you want to put us in government or because you want uh, us to have that continued influence in parliament. And that's you know, I understand all of the kind of, you, you know, junior, yeah, you're right. Junior partners and coalition governments traditionally, you know, at least in Europe, they tend to suffer at the next election. I think the flip side of that is if you look at late Jack Layton's time as NDP leader, he put a big emphasis on trying to capitalize on opportunities like this. And, uh, you know, I was rereading an article I co-wrote with someone in, in 2008 about the coalition when they put that together. And there was a, a note at the end of that story about how well maybe Jack Layton has just sort of uh, has made himself look like a kind of a, a lackey for the liberals now. And of course, three years later, he was the official opposition. So I think I think there's something to be said for the argument that the NDP will be able to go to the public and say, look, we're not just a party of protest here. We're not just the party that, you know, makes outrageous demands. We're a party that can do things. And, you know, we should be taken seriously in that respect. Also, I, you know, just thinking about it now, a lot of the cases that we think of those junior partners and coalitions, you know, you think of the NDP in Ontario in 85, 87, where the Liberals end up winning majority. You think of the Lib Dems in the UK, um, where they got kind of crushed after joining up with the Conservatives or the Greens in the recent one in BC, where they didn't get anything from it. In all of those cases, those were governments that were still relatively young, right? Mm -hmm. um, when you think about it in 2025, the Liberals will have been in for 10 years. And so there might not be a rush of, you know, credit going to the liberals for getting this stuff in. There might be still this element of change. And maybe the NDP is not in a bad position at that point. If people say, uh, you know, that we're, we're kind of done with the liberals, the conservatives might not be an option for some people. Maybe the NDP has suddenly made itself look like a government or potentially governable, you know, party. So I, I guess it yeah. could work out in different ways. Yeah, I think it's hard to predict exactly how this plays, because I, I do think the NDP has a pretty good chance of coming out of this and saying, you know, look, we're not just the fourth party. We're not just, uh, you know, a party for sort of very distinct, like, you know, kind of far left views or or sort of niche uh, demographics of voters. Like we're a party that was sitting at the table with the government and we're a party that, you know, delivered sensible dental care policy. And so I, you know, I understand the sort of knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, well, the NDP might get steamrolled here, but I just don't know that it's quite that simple. Yeah. I, I guess I should bring up some counterexamples to my own counterexample, uh, <laughs> Trudeau in 68 and uh, Trudeau again in 74, the NDP not getting uh, a lot of uh, benefit from having supported minority liberal governments before that. So we'll see. Uh, history right. obviously doesn't always repeat itself. Um, but what about the potential for other difficulties for the party? So uh, there won't be unanimous support for this among New Democrats. There won't be unanimous support among this among liberals. Uh, centrist liberals might not be very happy that the, the party is joining up with the NDP. Uh, more left-wing New Democrats might not be happy that they're joining up with the liberals. In the longer run, um, does this have some potential for some problems for either party uh, in, internally, not so much electorally, but internally? Yeah, I, I think, so first of all, anytime you do something that hasn't really been done before, at least at the federal level, 
there's probably some risk because you don't really know how the voting public's going to react to it and how they're going to view it. And I think you can see that kind of playing that the fight to kind of frame this playing out in the House right now because the conservatives are all over this as a you know a secret deal that has has you know put the has made the liberals a socialist government and 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 this isn't what anyone voted for and so on and so forth. And so I think there's a real like it's a real contest to see how the public kind of interprets this kind of deal making. I do, you know, yeah, the 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 easiest impression to leave here is that the liberals will have gone to the left uh, by signing up, by making a deal with the NDP and, and uh, you know, at least acquiescing to some of their demands. And so that's the frame that a lot of commentary will now look at liberal budget decisions and liberal policy decisions, right? We'll be looking for signs that the parties move to the left and it's, you know, spending like crazy and it's, it doesn't care about fiscal discipline anymore. And so I think that puts a real, so that, I mean, that, first of all, that raises a real risk for the liberals. And, and I think it puts a big onus on uh, Christian Freeland and others to sort of, you know, if that is a problem and we can debate whether or not, you know, blue liberals really exist anymore and where the center is anymore. But uh, the liberals have to, I think the liberals will probably want to show that you know, they haven't sold out to socialism and uh, and that they do have some fiscal discipline and uh, that just because they're 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 relying on the NDP for support, they're still going to do other things. Right. Like they're they're going to send lethal weapons to Ukraine. They're probably going to boost the military budget. Uh, they're not going to start, you know, uh, wildly taxing the rich. Uh, I, I, I suspect the liberals will want to be sort of conscious of, of the frame that could be put on them. And if they're worried about either their own caucus members or certain voter groups, uh, they're gonna have to kind of count, they're gonna have to kind of show that like, yeah, there still is a liberal party here. It's not a liberal New Democrat party. And, and we should also not overemphasize um, the liberals as a centrist party. Uh, if you do look at right. what their supporters want, they're much closer to New Democrats uh, on all these sorts of issues. Often the NDP might be a further left, their voters on certain issues. Um, but the difference between the Liberals and the New Democrats is very small compared to the difference between Liberal voters and Conservative voters when it comes to a lot of these issues, right? Um, you see it all the time on like, uh, you know, policy issues on the climate change, for example, liberals and the New Democrats, usually their supporters are almost identical in terms of support. Um, things like whether you think Donald Trump is is a nice guy, liberals and New Democrats kind of see things the same way. Conservatives don't. So there's much bigger gap between the liberals and the conservatives. Um, but I still kind of wonder what could happen with because um, I think I saw Scott Bryson uh, tweeting some things that he wasn't too happy about. Right. Because he was an old PCer who crossed the floor to the liberals. Um, there does seem to be that opportunity, but I wonder if it is a very small group of people that is not a viable political party or anything like that, which brings me to yeah, that, the, the conservatives. Yeah. But if you want to jump in on that, you can. Well, I was just going to, I was just going to say like, I don't, I, there are very prominent politicians and commentators uh, and liberals who you would describe as sort of blue business liberals, centrist liberals, Paul Martin liberals. Uh, and uh, but I don't, I, I confess, I don't know where, uh, I don't know if that, if that exists as a real huge voting demographic, uh, you know, outside of like business groups and, and such. I don't know how big of a, of an actual voting block that is. And, uh, this may segue to what you're about to get into, but like, unless the conservatives move to the center, uh, I don't 
know where those voters are going to go exactly. Uh, you know, unless the conservatives suddenly become the old progressive conservative party, those business, the business liberals are still presumably going to have more in common with the liberal party than the conservative party. So I'm not quite sure how big the risk is. Yeah. And it does depend who the next leader becomes of the conservatives, because you can see a pretty compelling argument that could be made by someone like Jean Charest that the center is being uh, evacuated, we should move there and we'll win elections. And that might actually be a very strong electoral pitch. I think it's the complete opposite of what the membership would want. The membership would not be saying just because the liberals are cozying up to the NEP means we should also go towards the left. I feel like the memberships, if anything, is going to get more hardened uh, against a lot of the policies that the liberals and the NDP are bringing in, which gives the advantage yep. to someone like Pierre Poiliev. But now we're talking about a scenario where the conservatives are not going to be um, united by the uh, prospect of an election just over the horizon. They now have an election that's three and a half years away. So I, I feel like there's much more potential now for the divisions within the party to, to have much more time to kind of crack and fissure and then finally split. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that potential is is there, and I don't. I mean, what what always unites partisans, right, is 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 the the chances of winning and forming government. So I don't. I I wonder whether conservatives will hang together simply because they look at the polls and they look at the situation and think, well, the best chance of us forming government is staying together. Uh, so we'll see. I, I mean, if if if, uh, if the polls crash for the conservatives over the next couple of years, or if they lose another election, then maybe that's what drives them apart. The other, I mean, it is, there, you know, you could see a world where if the conservative party goes to the right and the liberal party seems to be going to the left, where somebody gets the bright idea to try to form a party that's, you know, center right, uh, tries to kind of recreate the old PC party. I mean, it's a, it would be a huge gamble, and I don't know whether it would work, uh, but I, you do wonder whether at some point the, the, the people who feel politically homeless, so to speak, suddenly decide they want to form a party in the, of the middle. But I, I, I still think that self, you know, self-interest of partisans may hold everybody in the same spot. And so it, I think it really depends on how the leadership race plays out over there and how, I mean, it's so it's so acrimonious right now that that alone, regardless of the politics of it, the 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 sort of attacks that are going back and forth. I would wonder whether that is as much a threat as any as 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 any kind of philosophical differences. Uh, if that's as much a threat to the to the future of the party, we haven't seen any um, moderate language, I'd say, from Charest or Brown. Yeah. Uh, on the uh, on the deal between the liberals and the new democrats uh, questioning the democratic you know no. legitimacy of it so it it doesn't seem like anybody is taking that space at the time which i mean they do need to win this leadership race they can maybe have even longer to pivot maybe that's something that can happen Aaron O'Toole had to pivot within a few months whereas um, the next leader could try to make a pivot in the in 3 years but i'm not sure if it'll be as successful but does this kind of deal because now it is something that will have happened. And we're, let's assume that it holds, or at least it holds for long enough. It, it will change conversations about elections in the future, right? Because before, after the 2008 attempt at a coalition, it was all about coalitions. But because the bloc had been involved with it, it gave it a really dirty word. Uh, if this works out well enough, 
there might be a, a different conversation in future elections about whether parties can work together. And that seems like for the Conservatives, that could end up being, on the one hand, a good thing you could say if you're voting NDP, you're actually getting Liberal, or if you're voting Liberal, you're actually getting NDP. But it also means that after an election, the Conservatives might find themselves kind of lonely. Yeah, it is. It does raise a bunch of, like, so a couple of things. One is the next time there's a Liberal minority, uh, the natural question will be, okay, well, uh, are you guys going to work with the NDP? But the, the next time there's a Conservative minority, especially if the Liberal government is the incumbent at the time, like, for instance, after the next election, uh, the, the question for the Conservatives is whether or not they need a majority to ever really govern. Uh, now, the math is complicated. There's four parties. You know, it, to make it really work, you, you kind of need a, a pretty strong second place party and, and so on and so forth. Like, it, it, So it's not necessarily a slam dunk either way. But the conservatives do have to start thinking, like, how would we govern if we if we somehow manage to hold power in a minority or gain power in a minority? How would we govern? Like, would we work with the other parties? Would we you know, try to pursue a case-by-case basis. Uh, uh, you know, how would the public feel about that? Would the public kind of wonder why we weren't working with other parties? You know, the, the, the advantage the Liberals have is that there's kind of a natural partner. The Conservatives don't have a natural partner, uh, either because, you know, the parties are on the left or because the other party, the Bloc, is a separatist party and the Conservatives and everything else they've said about separatist socialist coalitions can't really be seen to be partnering with the Bloc. So, yeah, the conservatives get in a kind of a, a funny place here where they have to kind of think about, OK, well, what happens if we if we get a minority? Like, how do we govern in that situation? And it's not clear to me that there's any thought being given to that right now. Like right now, they just want to say the, uh, what you guys are doing is, is illegitimate. Uh, and and I don't know that they're really thinking long term about, OK, well, does that mean we can never make a deal with another party or? Or are they just assuming they'll never make a deal with another party? Uh, it does it does change the conversation about uh, how Parliament works when there's not a majority in the House of Commons. And as I've written, you know, like, and I probably said on here too, like, the that conversation had to change at some point. When five of seven elections, five of seven elections have produced minorities, and you've had seven elections in seventeen years. Uh, it, it, something had to kind of give somewhere where either people needed to go back to electing majorities or minority governments and minority parliaments needed to figure out how to survive for longer than two years. And I don't know that the Conservatives have really found their place in that conversation at this point. We're going to have an example of this unfolding in just a couple of months. We're already starting to see it in Ontario, uh, where it seems to be commonly accepted that if, if Doug Ford doesn't get a majority government, that uh, the Ontario Liberals and NDP will team up in some fashion in order to get them out of power. We'll see how that's actually going to unfold on the election campaign itself, kind of the rhetoric, and whether it's whether it's something that hurts the the opposition parties or 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 not. But we'll get an example of it if Ford doesn't get a majority government. You can almost see how this has the potential to have a dom- domino effect going forward. If you can imagine that this deal is struck. Uh, that uh, the Ford uh, PCs fall short of a majority, the Liberals in the Ontario then team up, it starts to become a, a transformative sort of thing uh, that could have real repercussions for elections and politics in Canada for, for quite a while. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, like, 
especially in the Ontario example, because that has been always the big question. Like even before this deal, the question was like, how if Doug Ford doesn't get a majority, like shouldn't uh, like shouldn't Del Duca and Horvath consider getting together and and forming their own government? Like isn't that just how math works? And now they will have you know this example to point to and. I do think, you know, like, look, if the if if there's probably there's a, there's a legitimacy argument here somewhere, like, like let's be clear, accord governments, what the government, what the liberals and NDP are doing is perfectly constitutional, perfectly democratic. There's no argument there. Now, if if Ford is like three seats short of a majority, and uh, there's a decent gap, there's a decent gap between him and the second place party, you know, like I wonder if cold feet sink in for the liberals and the new democrats like do they start to worry that they're they're somehow not going to look legitimate or that they're you know seizing power or that it's not it's too tenuous you know like that was part of the problem with the the quote-unquote coalition in 2008 was that it was pretty tenuous right like the liberals and the ndp together did not have a majority the bloc was supporting them but it was you know like the conservatives had a pretty decent minority like a, a decent plurality at that point in, that, in the house. So there was a bit of a, like, it was a little less clear cut, you know, whereas when you look at situations like BC in 2017, the result between the NDP and the BC Liberals was very close. Ontario in 1985, uh, again, the result was very close. I think the Liberals finished second in seats, but first in popular votes. So, you know, I don't know, it, it will be interesting to see how it plays out, but I do think you know, so Doug Ford's going to campaign like Stephen Harper did in 2011, which is give me a majority or the unholy alliance of uh, socialists and liberals are going to take over. Uh, and for Harper, that worked. Uh, I don't know if it'll work for Ford, but, uh, you know, the question conservatives do have to at some point kind of reckon with is, is it majority or bust for us in all situations? In which case, like, are we setting ourselves up to really struggle in the years ahead? Or do we need to start thinking about how we would govern in minority situations? Like we can't, is it sustainable for us to attack the legitimacy of these arrangements? Or do we have to start thinking about how we would govern in minority situations and how we would be able to hold on to power? You're right, because the rhetoric does in a way have the potential to become something that is really problematic if you need a partner um, and there is a willing one somewhere. Uh, if things realign somehow, um, it does seem to limit the options. There is also the possibility that um, you know, this agreement between the Liberals and the NDP does not work well, it falls apart right. and it becomes cautionary tale. And I suppose that then sends us back to where we were before. Um, so there is that also that possibility that could end up playing out. Um, so I, I want to talk about what this means for Justin Trudeau, because he is now, um, if this holds, again, this is a lot, a lot of this is predicated on the idea that this, is, this endures until 2025. Um, he will have been prime minister for 10 years. He will have been leader of the Liberal Party for uh, 12 years. I know that he has to say he's staying on because otherwise that would be it. He'd be a lame duck from the moment he says he's thinking of stepping down. Um, but does, does this almost inevitably increase the odds that he won't be the leader next time? I think it makes it, I think it at least makes it a lot easier for him to transition out of the leadership. You know, you're right. Anytime you can't, 
I understand why people want to ask Justin Trudeau whether he's going to so going to run in the next election, but there's really only one answer to that question until he's ready to actually say he's resigning. Uh, so I, I mean, he's not. We won't know he's resigning until he steps to the podium and announces it. Uh, or the night but, before, if uh, based on yeah, if Vashi <laughs> will Vashi will report it. Uh, the um, the if he does look it, like it's pretty hard to keep running. You know, with each successive election, you know this it gets harder and harder to 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 win right because you got more baggage people are getting more tired of you and and justin trudeau has been as public and prominent a prime minister as we've ever had so he it stands to reason that he will exhaust the public's patience sooner than he could exhaust the public's patience sooner than most uh it's hard to imagine like justin trudeau serving longer than Cretchen. i don't know it's it's a, it's a very it's a very odd idea i think just because his, his his hold after 2019 and after 2021 is so precarious, I guess. Uh, but he could. I mean, I think a lot will be predicated on you know just the straight polls, how how the liberals are looking and how his own personal numbers are doing. But if he did want to get out before the next election, it was always going to be hard when there was no guarantee of when that election was going to be. Right? Like, how do you? How do you announce your own resignation or announce your own intention to resign, allow for a leadership race, have that leadership race happen uh, and give your successor time to get into the job when you don't know when the next when the other opposition parties can fail you at a moment's notice. Right. The, the ability to plan and, and, and be sure that you've got six months or a year to go through that whole process uh, was, was pretty slim. So I think this does if he's looking for an off ramp you know, he's got one now, right? If he, if he, if in his, if, if he was thinking that maybe he didn't want to run into the next election, you know, he can now do that in 2023 or 20, he can now decide to resign in 2023 or 2024 and give his, his next person, the next leader, uh, uh, a good head start or a good chance to run in advance of the next campaign. I don't, I won't make any predictions, but like, you know, uh, there's lots of people that have underestimated Justin Trudeau at various points in his career. So who knows? He may want to run again. That would, if he ran again, I, I mean, depending on the math, he'd be in line to be the fifth longest serving prime minister, which would be pretty incredible at this point. Uh, but if he is looking for an off ramp, this deal really, really gives him that runway to mix my metaphors. It, it's hard to, um, I mean, because all we ever do really is is assess the political gains, the electoral gains of all these kinds of decisions. And it's it might be easy to look at this and be like, well, it's all about staying in power. It's all about, you know, uh, for the NDP avoiding an election. It's all about this. Um, you know, is it too cynica, cynical to, to uh, or is it not cynical enough to look at this and be like, um, you know, for the New Democrats, I saw Jagmeet Singh say, if we don't get the credit for this, as if we're at least giving people these things that they need, right. then that's all that he cares about. Um, it, there is an element that this could just be what these two guys would like to do and have decided to do it just to get this stuff done. Um, but it, it's hard to separate the politics out of it because, I mean, they're politicians. Right. <laughs> there may be politics occurring here. Uh, yeah, look, it's, everything's political, but... Uh, I suspect that there's a certain amount of like truth and and genuine belief in what Trudeau or what Singh said and 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 
I suspect that reflects to a certain degree what Trudeau feels too, is like, you're not here to just hold on to power and not do anything with it. You want to do something with it. Even if you just want, even if you just want a legacy of your own, uh, you, you at least want to be able to, you don't, you don't want to get out of office saying, well, he was, he was there for a while. That was cool. Uh, you know, you want to be able to say, oh, I did X, Y, and Z. And the policy implications of this deal, like I, I you know, they always get underplayed, but like this gives the, the, the current government time to uh, really establish some of the existing, existing policies they have going and on, particularly on climate and childcare. And it gives them a runway to, to implement all these new policies. Uh, you know, you know, the conservative pair policy is, Currently campaigning on uh, on abolishing the carbon tax. Uh, well, based on the current situation, he's not going to be able to do that for another three and a half years now. Uh, you know, by 2025, it's going to be a completely different conversation because that policy bill has been in place for that that much longer. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of things like that where there's a there's big policy that's going to get implemented over the next few years. And if you're Trudeau or if you're Singh and, and you're thinking that you know, who knows what the political future is going to bring. Uh, you're at least going to come out of this with some policy on your record. And that, you know, for the Liberals and the NDP, that's obviously going to give you something to run on in 2025. But just personally for those two, it's also means you, you know, when people go back in the history books, they'll say, oh, well, you know, at least you got X, Y, and Z. Like people still talk about what Leighton got out of the Martin budget, right? So you know, yeah, there's politics involved, but but uh, at the end of the day, that the reason they're in the reason the the reason they're in power and the the the, the time they're in power gives them a chance to do all these things. It's sort of, in a way, one of the uh, following in the footsteps of of what Stephen Harper did, right? Where it was the longer he's around, the harder it'll be to reverse some of these things, uh, and that'll happen for the Liberals and the NDP just as much as it might have happened for the Conservatives while they were in office. Yeah. And if you think about like Trudeau's time in office as sort of a response to Harper's, you know, Harper wanted to kind of uh, establish uh, a conservative idea and a conservative party and, and, and sort of tilt the, the future direction of the government to the right. Trudeau has come in and tried to pull it back to the left. And if he ends up spending, you know, as much or nearly as much or even more time as Harper in office, he'll have that much more time to pull things back in the other direction. Uh, and that's going to have lasting consequences. Like, you know, the carbon tax is a perfect example. It'll be that much harder, however much conservatives complain about it now. It'll be that much harder for them to, to switch gears three years from now. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to ask you for a prediction, but, you know, what does your gut say? Do you think this lasts the whole 2025? That feels tough to me. I mean, the NDP out in BC, yeah. they it was only a year until the next election. They decided to pull the plug and they weren't punished for it. And uh you know, you got to wonder if, if, if this kind of thing is built to last. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I do think to connect the two questions, the, I think the policy and the promise of policy gives it a chance, gives, their, gives an incentive for everybody to kind of stay on the same page. I, but yeah, I don't know that this gets all the way to the finish line. Uh, and you just never know how events are going to unfold. And you know, if the liberals get rocked with a scandal and their popularity plummets, uh, you know, eventually Leighton decided to take out the Paul Martin government. Uh, you know, Singh may have a, a formal deal, but if the liberal government crashes uh, for some reason or does something that he just can't deal with, 
there will be immense pressure on him to to pull a plug. And for the liberals, I mean, he would you would think that maybe they've learned their lesson about calling early elections, but the liberals are, <laughs> liberals aren't always great at learning lessons. So you know, who knows if 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 they're at forty five percent in the fall of twenty twenty four for whatever reason. Are they really going to go, well, we promised the NDP we'd stick around? Or, or do they go, you know what, let's, let's forget that we almost uh, got ourselves defeated in 2021. Let's roll the dice again. Yeah, let's not underestimate the uh, potential for people to make bad decisions uh, when yeah. it comes to politics. Yeah. So, All right. Well, there's uh, going to be still lots to unpack about this for the next few years. So uh, these are the early returns. And I appreciate you coming on, Aaron. Thanks, Eric. Thanks again to Aaron Wary for that discussion. There was a provincial by-election held on Tuesday in the Manitoba riding of Fort White in southwestern Winnipeg. This was a solid PC seat for decades, but the party nearly lost it. Obicon of the PCs took 43% of the vote, down from the 57% that Brian Pallister took when he was the PC candidate in Fort White in 2019. Now, the NDP forms the official opposition in Manitoba and is leading the PCs in the polls, But they finished third here. Instead, it was the Liberals and Willard Reeves who finished second with 40%, up from 18% back in 2019. So this definitely seems like a signal that the PCs are hurting a bit these days. A recent poll put Premier Heather Stephenson as the least popular Premier in the country. But both Khan and Reeves are also former Winnipeg Blue Bombers. It's hard to separate the politics from the sports here, as Reeves was part of a Grey Cup winning team for Winnipeg in the 1980s, and Khan wasn't. Okay, that'll be it for the RIT podcast. Remember to check out and subscribe to theRIT.ca for all the latest from me. And be sure to check out my YouTube channel where you can watch these podcast interviews. And I'm also starting to more regularly publish other videos too. And that's it for this week. Keep safe and thanks for listening. All right, my cat is currently biting my fingers, so... (laughs) We all right?